If you did not bring food, please stay for the potluck. Please join us. We'll be um, eating probably about 15, 20 minutes after the service ends. We'll get the food ready. Um, then we're, after we eat for a little bit, we're going to have the kids go upstairs. And we're going to have a great opportunity to share and talk about the fact that, uh, as we mentioned last week and has been out in the email, uh, we have a recommendation from the leadership team for a lead pastor for our church, Sam Huggard. We're very excited about it. And so um, the elder and candidate team that interviewed and, and worked with Sam in that process is going to share. And Sam and Wendy are also going to share a little bit about their vision for the church. And we're, so we're going to kind of talk about the process moving forward with that. So that's right after church today. Um, you know, like, I would say, hey, we'll try to have you out in time for the Pats. But guys, the dynasty is over. Like, we don't even need to watch it. They're probably going to lose. Their best hope is 6-11 and 11 this year, okay? So um, email me later if you have any issues with that, okay? Um, so, all right. Hey, let me say a prayer for us, um, and we're going uh, to get going here. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, a beautiful day. Thank you for this fall season that we're entering. Thank you for the creativity um, that you make the leaves change color. You didn't have to do that. Um, and we're thankful that it shows your glory. And um, we thank you that we get to be a part of what you're doing through your son, Jesus. And we pray that uh, the things we talk about today um, that were written thousands of years ago wouldn't, um, wouldn't be boring or irrelevant, but they would be very relevant to our lives um, wherever we find ourselves this morning. I pray that um, you would give us eyes and ears to see and hear the things in your holy scriptures that you want us to see this morning. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So last week we started a new uh, fall teaching series. It, was on, it is on the book of Ephesians. This is Sam's slide that he used last week, which said week one, an introduction to Ephesians. I am not preaching the same sermon, but I had a copy of that slide that I thought was so good that I'm using it again. Um, and Sam introduced this series last week on the book of Ephesians and said that Ephesians is about seeing reality properly. Okay, seeing reality. Don't we all want to see reality properly? Okay, maybe some of you are like, I have, I, I really know that I don't see reality properly. Maybe some of you are like, I see reality completely properly. Okay, if that's true, you're wrong, probably, okay? As Abby and I said frequently during COVID to each other, we're like, if everyone just thought like we did, the world would be so much better. We thought that, that wasn't true, because we don't see reality properly, okay? But Sam talked about how the idea is that generally, we don't see the world properly, and the way that if those of us who wear glasses or corrective lenses need them to see properly, if I took my glasses off, everything would be blurry. I wouldn't be able to see you properly, and he's saying that the book of Ephesians um, is, are like lenses that help us see reality properly. So this book is actually a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul to a fledgling church or a group of Christ followers in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, all right? And um, Sam also talked about this last week, that Ephesus was a large city. It was a hip city. It was cosmopolitan, also pluralistic, Okay, they had a lot of different things they worshipped. And I want to recap, Sam talked about three different buildings in the city of Ephesus last week, and honestly, when he started off, I'm like, this three buildings? We're talking about archaeology? Like, this sounds boring. He talked about these buildings. I thought they were really interesting, okay? So I'm going to share them again with you. He talked about three buildings that showed 
what the city of Ephesus was like. One was a theater, a huge theater that could hold 24,000 people. That's about the size of the TD Garden where the Celtics or Bruins play. It's actually larger. This was a, a theater that was engineered in a way that someone could stand on stage and without a microphone could speak and all 24,000 people could hear them. It was sort of like a marvel of engineering. This was a prominent feature of the city. There was also two temples in the city that were large. One was a temple to the Greek goddess Artemis, who is the goddess of fertility or sexuality. This was a place with prostitution and um, prayers and sex all kind of mixed together at this temple, and that was a key building in the city. There was also a temple to the Roman emperor, where you could come and pay homage to the emperor. That was also a key building in that city. So this people in Ephesus, they tended to see the world through the lens of entertainment, as was reflected in this theater, okay? Or they might have seen the world through the lens of sexuality or fertility, as was reflected by this temple to Artemis. Or they saw the world maybe through the lens of politics, political power, as was reflected through this temple to the emperor. And in some ways, our world is like that today. But I want us, as we start this passage, to think about today, what lenses do you see the world through? How do you see the world? Because we all have a, a ways of seeing the world, okay? I talk about this frequently when I preach, but I see the world through the lens of Bjorn Anderson. I see the world through the lens of me, okay? And sometimes that's good, sometimes that's like not so good, okay? This morning I woke up grumpy, I had had a long week, a hard week, and I was seeing the lens through the world of like, what, like, I have a lot to get done, people need to serve me, I need things taken care of for me. Like, I was seeing the world through my own lens, okay? I think this is true for all of us, that we all tend to see the world through ourselves first. This was definitely true of a guy named Stacy King. Does anyone know who Stacy King is? Stacy King was a All-American basketball player at the University of Oklahoma in the 80s. He was drafted with the third pick in the NBA draft by the Chicago Bulls when they were just getting to be really good. Their best player was Michael Jordan, okay? The, probably the greatest basketball player who ever lived. Stacy King was the number three pick, and people thought, oh, he's going to be so good. He's going to really help this team out. He had a sort of disappointing career, but he was on the team the night that Jordan scored played in the game where he scored the most points he ever scored in his career, 69 points. I think it was against Cleveland. Jordan scored 69 points. That same night, Stacy King scored one point in the game, okay? And after the game, he was asked by a reporter, what was it like to be on the court the night that Michael Jordan scored 69 points? And he said, you know, I'm always going to remember this night. I will always remember this night as the night that Michael Jordan and I scored 70 points. So he was seeing the world through the lens of Stacy King, which is fine. That's who he is. But no one remembers that night. Do you remember that night Jordan dropped 69? Oh, yeah, Stacy King, he was awesome. He hit that one free throw. No one remembers it that way. He wasn't really seeing reality properly, okay? And so what lenses do you see the world through? And Paul is inviting us to see the world through different lenses than we might normally see in this book. So we're going to look at Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. I would love for you to open it up if you have a copy of the Bible with you. If you don't and you have a phone, a cellular device, open it up. I'd love for you to kind of look at this passage and have it open as we look at it, okay? This is a beautiful passage. Nick read some of it to us as we went through our time of singing. 
I will tell you this, it's really profound. It's a little hard to understand. I was like reading it and sometimes thinking like, this is like spiritual mumbo jumbo. Like it's just all these words. Here's the thing. This, is, this was originally one sentence in the original Greek language, a 202 word sentence. If Paul submitted it, on Google Drive to his English teacher, I think she or he would have sent it back and said more punctuation, less words, okay? Like, you know, I, but it's the Holy Scripture, so he was doing it right, you know? But like, it is a little bit confusing. But here's what I want you to do is I'm gonna read this, have the copy of the Scripture open, we'll have it up on the screen, and let it kind of like wash over you. And as I read it, maybe see if there's certain words that stand out to you from the text. Okay, just see if there's certain words that stand out to you from this 202-word sentence, which in our English Bibles is broken up into different sentences. Okay, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Let me read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." That's the word of the Lord. Um, anybody want to just say, like, were there words or phrases that, like, stood out to you? Just yell out a word or phrase that stood out to you from the text. Anyone just want to say some? In Christ, that's great. Blessing, yes. What else? Anything else? Lavished, that's great. Anything else? Inheritance, love it. What else? Adoption. Did I hear something else? In him grace. Okay, like we, we could go on, but there's, there's a lot of words. There's 202 words in this sentence. There's a lot of words. A lot stand out. But here's what I want to do, okay, is to help us um, just kind of make some sense of this passage. Here's what I'm going to draw out. I'm going to draw out two phrases, three gifts, and one image. Two phrases, three gifts, and one image. You're like, wow, I'm so glad I came on the day there was a six-point sermon. You're welcome, okay? We do not charge for this, free of charge. Okay, first phrase that, that, that stands out, okay, is the first two verses of verse 3. Blessed be. The verse says this, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We also put up here the NIV translation. I was reading from the ESV, that's the extra spiritual version, but I was reading from the NIV, um, and it's, or the NIV says, praise be. So the phrase is this, blessed be or praise be. First phrase I want us to think about, okay? We do, in our culture, we use the word blessed frequently. It's sort of become like a joke, like hashtag blessed, okay? It tends to be, we use that phrase when we're talking about things that are going well for us. I'm flying to the Caymans next week, hashtag blessed. You know, I just got a new car, hashtag blessed. It's almost become like a joke, okay, or like something you could make fun of. But this phrase is not talking about blessings that we have done, it's talking about blessing or praising God, not ourselves. And here's why I want to draw out this phrase, because Paul is telling us that we need to praise, we need to bless God the Father and Jesus the Son, and there's ample reason why we should bless and praise God, and that's what this passage is about. So here's a question for us, what do you give your praise to? What do you praise Another way to ask it would be, what gets your attention? What do, what do I give my praise and blessing to? I think if an alien was dropped into this world and followed you around for a day, which would be a very strange situation, but if that happened, I think the alien would say, like, these people give most of their attention to this little black rectangle that sits in their pocket all day. That's what gets their attention, their device, their phone. I looked at my screen time last week, three hours and 36 minutes daily that I spent on my phone. 93 times on average I picked up my phone every day. I don't know if that's good, bad, high, low, seems, seems high to me, but my phone gets a lot of attention. What gets your attention? Is it worthy of your attention? And Paul is telling us the reality that God should get our attention and that he's worthy of it. And that's what, he's gonna, that's what he unpacks as he talks about this gift. So the first phrase is, blessed be or praised be. What gets your praise? The second word or phrase, and somebody yelled it out to us, shouted it out to us, is this phrase, in Christ. In Christ. Okay, and if you look at verse 3 again, which we just had up there, notice that it says, the phrase in Christ is right in the middle. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. This phrase, this is a favorite phrase of the Apostle Paul. He uses the phrase in Christ 27 times in the book of Ephesians. In all his writings, he wrote a lot of letters, most of the New Testament, maybe half of it, 80 times he uses the phrase in Christ. It is a defining feature of people who have given their lives to Christ is that they are in Christ. We will frequently, in the church especially, we might label people, is that person a Christian? Are they not a Christian? Or we might use a phrase like, is that person a believer? Meaning, I think we're talking about, do they believe in Jesus? Is that person born again? That's sort of something people said maybe in the 80s. Um, but like, that we will use phrases to describe people. The phrase that Paul would use to describe someone is in Christ. Are you in Christ? And it doesn't mean in Christ, like, 
it doesn't mean inside of like a tool is in a toolbox or groceries are in a bag at the store. It means that if we are trusting in Jesus, we are organically united to him in the way a branch is part of a tree. The branch is in the tree or my arm is part of my body. He's saying that you're, we're organically united to the person of Jesus. We're in him. This is the dominant lens, I think, that Paul sees the world through, being in Christ. And Sam made a great point last week in the sermon, and he was saying our location in Christ, it's, well, it's not just a lens, it's a location. It's a location, and it affects the current location where we live. For instance, I currently live in America, but my location as one who is in Christ should affect the way I see myself as an American. My location as one who is in Christ should affect the way I see entertainment, sexuality, politics. Those things that might be true of me, I have an identity as a husband, as a father, as an American, as a Patriots fan, as X, Y, or Z. Those things should come under the fact that my predominant location is in Christ. And those things flow through those lenses. In another book that Paul wrote, another letter in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, I'll put this up on the screen, he says something that's always very convicting to me. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I've always been convicted by this passage, the part that's underlined, the last verse. Paul's saying, when Christ appears, you'll also appear with him. But he's making this almost parenthetical statement. When Christ, who is your life? Like Christ is your life. He's all you have. He's the most important thing in your life. Christ is your life. Um, I, I literally just thought of this. When I was growing up in high school, this was like a huge like, uh, negative thing, like a diss that people would used to say. To, people would be like, you have no life. That was like a big thing. Like, I don't know, it was like in the 80s, 90s. What were you doing Friday night? Oh, hanging out with your parents. You have no life. You know? But like, Paul would be like, my life is in Christ, man. My life is in Christ. You know? I, that has nothing really to do with the sermon, but I just thought like, Little like 12-year-old Bjorn who heard like that he had no life should have known this verse, you know. But, um, but Jesus is saying like our identity and location comes through being in Christ. Because we're in Christ, we get a lot of gifts. God has bestowed on us a lot of things. I want to look at three of them. Three gifts that are in this text, okay? The first gift mentioned here is the gift of perfection. We see it in verse 4. Verse 4 says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. If you're in Christ, you are holy and blameless before God. Sam mentioned the word holy last week. Quite frankly, you may not want to be described as holy. Sometimes it's almost like an insult. Oh, 
like, sorry, you're so holy, or like that person's like a holy roller. But holiness is probably like the dominant characteristic of God described in the Bible, and it means that God is set apart. He's completely different than anything else in all creation because he created it, he sustained it, he's all-powerful, he's all-wise, he's all-loving. And if we are in Christ, we're also set apart. We're holy because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. We're also blameless. Blameless means that we experience freedom from the guilt and shame of sin. Now notice this. Notice this. Where are we holy and blameless? In verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It doesn't say holy and blameless, period. It means before him. God sees us as holy and blameless. Not that we are in and of ourselves holy and blameless. We are because of Christ. So by virtue of being in Christ, we have perfection, which was, is what Jesus has. Um, sociologists right now are, are saying that our world is more obsessed than ever with perfection. Um, a lot of sociology studies like tie this to social media that people display like their, their best selves, their best day on social media. And so we hold our worst day to that standard and it falls short and so we're not perfect. But that especially like an emerging generation is hyper obsessed with doing the exact right things in the exact right order to get the exact right outcomes. So there's this almost like stress or anxiety around perfection. If we have these lenses, it means we see perfection differently. It's not that we have to do things, it's that we're in Christ and he already did those things. We have perfection in him. This is how Paul put it also in the letter of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 22 and 22. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, same phrase he used just now in Ephesians 1, 4, and above reproach before him. If you're in Christ, you stand perfect before God and above reproach. The word reproach means an expression of disapproval. If you have reproach, I, we frequently have reproach for our new, our dog who is not well behaved. We have reproach for him. We are dis disapproving of our dog, okay? It means you're, we're disapproving. And I think frequently as human beings, we maybe stand before God or others with reproach, like we feel disapproval towards us. Have you ever, have you ever stood in the mirror, looked at yourself in the mirror and had reproach for yourself? I don't like what I see. Have you ever like looked at social media at other people's perfect lives and had reproach for yourself? Like everyone seems happier than I am. Have you ever looked at your job or your kids or your family or your life situation and had reproach, disillusionment, disappointment? In Christ, we stand free from reproach. Not because we're, we're perfect in and of ourselves, but because we are made holy and blameless in Christ. Gift one, perfection, if we're in Christ. Gift two, adoption. Someone said the word adoption earlier when we were yelling out phrases. Verse five says this. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. We stand before Christ perfect because we've been adopted into his family. 
When a child is adopted, they are brought into a family and they receive the same rights, privileges, inheritance, and responsibilities as other children in the family. We get adopted into the family of God. Who was the original son in the family of God? Jesus. Jesus was the original son in the family of God. That means we receive the same rights, responsibilities, inheritance, and privileges as Jesus. We could call him our brother because we're adopted into his family. Do you know why God the Father loves God the Son? It's not because of what Jesus did, although that does please God. It's because of who he is. He's the second person of the Trinity. God loves him just because he's his son. I want to look at one of the early moments from Jesus' life. We'll put it up on the screen here when Jesus was baptized. This is a great passage. A lot of us are probably familiar with it. But in Mark 1, 9 through 11, we read this. When Jesus was baptized, right when he was starting his public ministry, it says this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. I just want the last phrase, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. I want you to hear the beauty of those words from God the Father to God the Son. Do you know how many miracles Jesus had done at this point in his life? Zero. Do you know how, many, how much teaching Jesus had done at this point? None. Do you know how many times Jesus had died on a cross for the sins of humanity at this point in his life? None. But God says, I'm well pleased with you because you're my son. Not because of anything he did, although all those things Jesus would do did bless God the Father, and he was pleased with them. The same is true for us. God loves us as his sons and daughters, not because of what we done, have done or haven't done, but because we are his children. Now, if we have this gift of adoption, we also share the responsibilities of Jesus. Romans 8, 15 through 17 is worth writing down and probably reflecting on. It is a beautiful passage about this idea of adoption. And it says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. We get this gift of adoption, but it's a, it, there's a cost that comes with the gift. We're called to suffer because Jesus was God's son, and he suffered greatly. There will be suffering in this world. There will be suffering for us who are sons and daughters who are adopted into being in Christ. Now, I should mention real quick that these verses use the very interesting slash exciting slash hot button word, predestination. And I'm really thankful uh, that I got to preach the passage on predestination. If, you've, if you're not around the church, you might just be like, ah, oh, it sounds like something from a Marvel movie. If you've been around the church for a while, you realize like people get really like 
excited, not excited, mad, angry about this, this word predestination. I emailed Sam. I said, hey, thanks for having me pe- preach this passage on predestination. He, he emailed me back one sentence. This passage was chosen for you. <laughs> um, I don't have the time or the theological sil- skill set to get into this word, but I don't think it was meant to be controversial. I'm a, I, I think, in, at least in this passage, the word predestined, that we were like predetermined or chosen in advance to be God's sons and daughters, I think it's supposed to be a comfort and a contrast. Okay, here's what I mean by a comfort, is that our standing with Jesus as his children wasn't that we, di- that we did it. It, w- it was based on God's choosing, not ours, although... Y- Obviously, human choice bears a, bears a place and is all throughout the scripture, but it's based on God's choosing. So we can be comforted that it's God's doing, not ours. It's also a contrast. Paul was writing to people in Ephesus. They had all these temples to Greek gods and goddesses. One was Artemis, who we mentioned. Those Greek gods and goddesses were, um, they were like real fickle in how they, they acted sort of like spoiled teenagers. And people like knew that. They talked about it. If you study the like um, Greek and Roman myths and gods in, in school or whatever, you learn that they, they act kind of like bratty humans. And that was like part of their story. And so they're sort of fickle. So like I go praying for fertility to the temple of Artemis. I don't know if Artemis is going to give me fertility or not. She might, she might not. There might, might be like fickle st- or whatever, but Paul is trying to contrast God the Father with the, with the gods of that time and saying, like, God is not fickle. Before time started, he chose you for this role. He's not just willy-nilly changing his mind. So he's differentiating ourselves from himself, from other gods. And that's all you need to know about predestination. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> read a book or a thousand. They're out there. Okay. Um, God's given us the gift of perfection and adoption. And the last one is this, redemption. This one's going to be very, very short. But the third gift to highlight is in verse 7. Verse 7 says this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have redemption. Here's a definition of redemption that I saw this week. Gaining possession of something in exchange for a payment. You get something for a payment. Redemption means we gain perfection, adoption, the blessing of being in Christ. The payment is the blood of Jesus. The payment is Jesus' life. We gain an eternity with God. We gain removal of our sins. The payment is Jesus' life. It's about as simple of a statement as you can get of what we believe. We are redeemed through the blood of Jesus. You are redeemed through the blood of Jesus. That's the third gift, redemption. And we, we're stopping, like there's much more. I really, looked at, I really highlighted those first three gifts just from verse 7. There's more. It could be a cool practice to read the scriptures and say, what gifts are being offered to me in Christ in this particular passage? Not just Ephesians 1, but another passage that I'm reading. Um, And we could mine this passage more for more gifts. But I want to close with a final image that might help us cement this in our heart. 
Because if you're like me, you might feel like either A, these gifts are a bit abstract, like, I don't know what to do with them, or you might feel like, oh, those sound good, but I don't feel very perfect. I don't feel like a child of God. I don't feel any different. We just sang a song this morning, who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. I, I personally was singing those words thinking, I do not feel free. I feel anxious. I feel worried. But I'm going to sing these words because they are true. Whether I feel them or not, God has set me free in Christ. Um, but there's a gift that God has given us in the person of the Holy Spirit. We've talked a lot about the relationship between the first two persons of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son, but there's a third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and he's referenced in verse 14, 13, and 14. So we'll look at this. This is the image. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is God living inside of us. For those who are in Christ, God lives inside of us through the person of the Holy Spirit. And one of his roles among many is to remind you and me of the gifts we have in Christ. Adoption, redemption, perfection. And the Holy Spirit is, it says in verse 14, he is the guarantee of our inheritance, but actually there's like, in my Bible, there's a little number four, and if you go down into number four, it says, or down payment. The Holy Spirit is a down payment on these gifts. That's the closing image, is that God gives us his Holy Spirit as a down payment to remind us that these gifts currently are ours and one day will be in fullness ours. That's what a down payment is. When Jesus comes back or when we die and experience glory in the new heavens and new earth, that's when we will receive the gifts in full, but they are already ours. Last fall, I referenced this earlier, our family bought a dog. It ended years of high-level, United Nations-level negotiations between us and our kids, and we purchased said dog as a surprise early Christmas gift uh, there was a breeder in Pennsylvania who was breeding this dog, and we were in Pennsylvania for Thanksgiving, and so the breeder who had been taking care of this dog brought the dog to the house where we were staying for Thanksgiving. And we, the, the breeder showed up, and our, our kids were all there, and we're showing our kids the dog. They did not know that this was our dog. They were just like, oh, these people are here. This is a cute dog. This is a cool dog. And finally, Abby said... Um, do you like this dog? He's yours. He's your dog. The gift is already yours. Because here's the thing. Um, Abby and I had paid a deposit. We had already paid for the dog. The dog was ours. For six to eight weeks, we, Abby and I, have been getting like videos and pictures of the dog, and the breeder saying, here's your dog. 
Now, our kids, because we are not as kind as our Heavenly Father, we did not tell our kids that they were getting this dog. So it was hard for them. It was like they, were, they kept saying, like, we really want a dog, we really want a dog. In fact, just a few nights before we got the dog, there was like, we're never getting a dog. And I remember thinking, like, you already have a dog, but you don't know it. And so we didn't say it. But the Holy Spirit sort of serves as a down payment for these gifts of perfection and adoption and redemption saying these gifts are already yours. Like the, the dog was ours, but we hadn't fully taken possession of the dog. Some days I wonder if we should have just kept the arrangement as it was. Just, hey, send us a video every once in a while. That would be great. But, uh, but then we fully took possession of the dog, okay? And so the idea is that if we're in Christ, these gifts are ours. The whole, not because we're, we paid the payment. Remember, Jesus paid the payment, and the Holy Spirit is in us reminding us, hey, there's a down payment on perfection and adoption and redemption, and you'll, the fullness comes when Jesus comes back or when you die and leave this world where we still struggle with sin, but the gifts are yours now. So when Abby said to our kids, do you like this dog? It's yours. We could say, like, do you like being adopted into God's family? Do you like being holy and blameless before him? Do you like being redeemed? Those are yours. Those are your gifts. So, um, a question for us, or for you as, you, as we close. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Like, what does it mean to be a, a, a Christian? It's sort of become like a, uh, like a cultural thing. Like, oh, I'm a Christian because I'm not X, Y, or Z, or America's X percent Christian. Or in this election, they need to get the Christian voting block. That's not, what, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about being in Christ, united to him. Are you in Christ? And the second question would be, which of these gifts do you need to like, realize in your life? Like, which gift of perfection or adoption or redemption do you, do you feel like you need to, you need to like, understand? That gift is yours. And then long for the day when you'll have it in completion. Let's pray together. Father God, 